You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Just a heads up, today's episode discusses chronic pain and elder abuse, topics that might be a trigger for some listeners. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to Woman on the Line one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. How I think about pain has been informed by the people that I've spoken with. I found um, their way of thinking and their courage really inspiring. Um, I still think chronic pain is a huge issue and we need to talk about it more and it's not being addressed properly. That's Georgia Mill, the host of the podcast, A Fluorescent Feeling. We'll hear more from Georgia later in the program. This week on Woman on the Line, we're joined by Melanie Jusen from Seniors Rights Victoria to help us understand all about elder abuse. And later in the show, Georgia Mill, the host of the podcast, A Fluorescent Feeling, explains how we can have better conversations about chronic pain. But first up, Melanie from Seniors Rights Victoria. Yes, so Seniors Rights Victoria is a program of Cota Victoria, which represents the rights of older people. And Seniors Rights Victoria is a community legal centre. And so we work with people, older people, who have experienced elder abuse or trying to prevent that abuse. So we help individual people um, trying to address what's happening to them. And we also do uh, community awareness and professional education, that sort of thing, to raise awareness about elder abuse. So going into this interview, I did a bit of research. And prior to looking into this subject, I always assumed elder abuse meant physical abuse but that's not Mm. the case what are other types of elder abuse what are we looking at yeah it's a really interesting area because it's a whole range of behaviors Um, there's the world health organization has sort of published a definition around elder abuse saying that it's any act which causes harm to an older person and is carried out by someone they know and trust so it can be psychological abuse, um, emotional abuse, um, threats, humiliation, pressure, that sort of thing. Physical abuse as well, that happens um, quite a bit. Social abuse, which is often things like isolating a person, um, cutting off their connection to their friends or not letting um, community services come in and assist the person, that sort of thing. Um, For older people, it can sometimes be things like neglect um, and not um, assisting someone with the care that they need as as they age when it's that person's responsibility. Um, And also for elder abuse, it can often be financial abuse. So it can be straight up stealing a person's money or assets or coercing them into signing over their property You might have heard of the term inheritance impatience before, and it's when family members, you know, are getting impatient to get their hands on mum and dad's money and do all sorts of things in order to to get that. And it comes from the view that people hold, which really stems from ageism, I guess, thinking that older people don't need 
their money um, and they should hand it over. So a lot of the issues kind of stem stem from there. Mm. Um, Maybe it's just my ignorance, um, but I, when I thought about elder abuse, I always assumed it was to do with like residential living with aged care centers, but sometimes it actually happens closer to home. Who, so when we talk about perpetrators of elder abuse, who, who comes to mind? Yeah, well, elder abuse, I mean, unfortunately, it also does happen in aged care um, and those sorts of um, caring scenarios. Um, And we heard a lot about that in the Aged Care Royal Commission. The work we do at Seniors Rights Victoria is primarily elder abuse as a form of family violence. And so it's very similar to other forms of family violence in the, in the sorts of behaviours that people exhibit. And with our clients, um, about 90% of the perpetrators are a family member of the older person. And so almost 70%, so around two-thirds of the time, it's an adult child of the older person, so a son or daughter is the most common perpetrator. We also do see intimate partner violence, so the partner or ex-partner of the older person. For our clients, that's around 10% um, of the people we see, but I suspect that there's a much higher percentage of um, that intimate partner violence happening. You know, it doesn't stop just because someone ages, the perpetrator or the victim ages, Um, but we don't see it as often, I think, just due to the nature of our service as a community legal centre and with a focus on on older people. So some of those people experiencing intimate partner violence might be accessing other women's services um, and things like that. The other thing is we don't see people at our service who have um, a cognitive impairment where they can't give legal instruction, that sort of thing. So we don't also see people who don't call us. Um, So that's likely to include people from sort of marginalised communities, um, people from diverse backgrounds and things, because if they don't know about our service or don't see that it's for them, they're not calling us, so we're not able to reach. So it's kind of a limited view that we have, but definitely it's a family situation Mm. usually. And seniors' rights um, supports people from all across, right? So you sort of touched on marginalised communities, and I'd love to, like, sit here for a bit on that. Um, Mm. Are there added barriers that First Nation elders and people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities, are there added barriers they face when it comes to elder abuse? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it's um, like, like any community, you know, when if your language isn't English, then it makes it much harder to reach out to a predominantly English speaking service and seek help. So that's always a barrier. You know, we have interpreters and we do work with like ethnic community councils of Victoria and other organisations to try to do a lot of outreach into different communities. Um, but, you know, that is a barrier that, that we experience. Um, we do offer our services So we sort of have an age range for our services and um, that age range is lowered for people of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background because unfortunately um, their life expectancy is lower and they experience age-related issues at a much earlier stage of their life in general um, than the wider population. Um, So in reflecting that, we offer our services to people at a younger age age um, but as well it can be quite difficult 
these issues are really difficult for anyone to speak about and to seek help and particularly for communities where people might feel that they don't want fellow community members to know what's going on, mm. then they might not feel comfortable talking about it and finding out about services like ours. So it is an added barrier. We've been saying, we've been throwing around the word elders, but what age are we talking about? And I know that First Nation communities, the age um, at which someone is considered a senior is different. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we to use the term elder abuse and it's kind of in some ways a bit of an alienating term because we don't use that term elder much um, in the Western world and it has a different meaning for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities where it's more connected to a person's um, sort of community status um, and they're kind of the way they're embedded in those communities and it's not as much about age. Generally, we... Um, see older people in Australia as 65 and above, sort of pitching that at around retirement age. But we do offer services to people um, sort of a, a bit below that, recognising that different people's life experiences, including disability and illness and things like that, might mean that pe people are affected by age-related challenges at different parts of their lives. You know, your chronological age doesn't necessarily relate to your life circumstance. So an 80-year-old um, could be perfectly healthy and independent and another 80-year-old might have, you know, a lot of um, age-related illnesses and, and things like that. Mm. I guess the reason I asked that question is even though I'm not from like a First Nation background, my background mm. is Somali. So for us, when we mm -hmm. use the word elder, sometimes mm. it doesn't connote age. It's just more yep. to do with experience and knowledge. So I guess that's why I wanted to ask and go, oh, so are we talking about the same elder? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, generally for one of the, and that's one of the interesting things is that what we find is often the abuse that people experience is intergenerational. So it's not about the age of the person so much or the perpetrator, but it's that they come from those different generations. So it's often parent and child, but sometimes it's grandparent, grandchild, um, uh, niece, nephew, those sorts of things. So it's more about the difference in age than necessarily the advanced age of the older person. That's good to know. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for highlighting that point. Um, so not everyone who is experiencing um, elder abuse will speak out, unfortunately. Mm. Um, some people end up suffering in silence. Um, obviously, this doesn't mean that they don't need help or want mm. it. But are there signs that we in the community can look out for? Like, how do we, how are we able to, to spot the signs? Yeah, well, it's we've got a great resource on that, actually, um, that you can find on our website. Um, but some of the signs are if a person's behaviour has changed, if they're more withdrawn than usual, if they're not partaking in the sort of activities that they used to do, um, if they've become sort of a little bit um, afraid, confused, um, maybe reluctant to talk about money and finances or if they've stopped paying for things that they used to. Um, for some people with a cognitive impairment, you know, if they're starting to not be able to look after themselves and the person who's expected to look after them, a family member, um, it, it seems that the person's, you know, dishevelled, uh, neglected, perhaps not being you know, fed well, those sorts of things, they can all be signs. But really, the most important thing is to 
talk to the older person about it. Maybe ask them, are they feeling safe? Are they feeling respected? Um, is anyone causing them trouble or disrespecting them? Those sorts of questions that can be a little bit more gentle. Um, and listen to what the older person says and what they want to do. Because one of the really complicated things about it is that when it is a child of the older person who is causing the abuse, there's often other factors involved and the older person doesn't necessarily want that child to get into trouble. So they might want the abuse to stop, but they also might be concerned about, well, what happens to my son if I kick him out of the house? Or what happens to my daughter if I say she can't come, come around anymore or she keeps asking for money, those sorts of things. So it's really important to you know, sort of talk to the older person and see what they want to do about the situation rather than just impose what we perhaps might think is the right way to go about it. Mm, that, that totally makes sense because at the end of the day, as you mentioned, they want the behaviour to stop, but they still want yes. to maintain those relationships and those connections because yes. those, those things are obviously important to them. So I guess it's important to make that distinction. So I do appreciate that. Um, all right. So Victoria is in its sixth lockdown. I can't <laughs> believe I'm actually saying that. Obviously, everyone is doing it tough. Mm. But how has COVID-19 like compounded the issue of elder abuse? Yeah, it's been quite interesting. At the start um, of the pandemic, we were very concerned and keep being concerned about the fact that a lot of people have returned home to live with their parents. Um, so people who are experiencing you know, unemployment or haven't been able to go overseas or have returned from overseas, that sort of thing, um, have often returned to live with their parents. Our main concern with that is that it might be okay for the short term, but then in the long term, problems might arise um, if family conflict kind of gets um, quite out of control and there's lots of stresses that people have. Um, we actually did an analysis of our calls over the last year compared to the previous year, and we found that we had fewer calls, particularly during those lockdown periods from older people. So we're assuming that often in those situations that the perpetrator was perhaps living at home with the older person, the older person couldn't get away to make the sort of phone call to us that they usually would to sort of seek advice, um, talk about a situation that they're in. Because as soon as the lockdowns finished, we did see um, calls jump right back up again um, to higher levels. So it sort of indicated that people did stop calling a bit during the lockdowns, which is a worry because um, police, ambulance, emergency departments, they all recorded an increase in older people who had experienced family violence. So we know it wasn't that the abuse stopped. We just know that people weren't reaching out to services like ours. Um, at the time. We did see some, particularly around people um, from non-English speaking backgrounds, we had fewer calls. So that was quite concerning because as I mentioned, we already feel that we perhaps aren't serving those communities well enough and that they're less engaged with our service. So the fact that they were even less likely to call um, might have reflected that, you know, they were stuck at home with the perpetrator and not able to be out and about to, to make contact. So Definitely, we're concerned about people feeling more isolated, uh, not having their other family members check in on them, that sort of thing. Um, and we did have some situations where we had family members, so adult children, using the stay-at-home rules to kind of um, prevent the older person from having contact with others, that sort of thing. So sometimes it was being used as a form of abuse. 
That was Melanie Justin from Seniors Rights Victoria discussing the effects COVID-19 has had on vulnerable elders. To learn more about elder abuse, go to seniorsrights.org.au. If you or someone you know is experiencing elder abuse, call the Senior Rights Victoria helpline on 1300 368 821. Our second guest this week is Georgia Mill. Georgia is the host of the podcast, A Fluorescent Feeling. I reached out to Georgia to learn more about chronic pain and why it's still a taboo subject. My name is Georgia Mill. I'm a writer and artist and um, I've created a short audio series called A Fluorescent Feeling um, together with Michelle Macklem and Beth Atkinson Quinton. It introduces listeners to people with lived experiences of pain, illness, and disability, and it predominantly features artists, writers, designers, and video journalists. So it's looking at creative responses to pain and how pain intersects with all aspects of our identity. And how did a fluorescent feeling come about? It came about through a writing project that I'm working on, which is looking at um, pain, chronic pain. It predominantly has a focus on the queer community writing project, but through those interviews I was doing with people, they introduced me to artists and practitioners and I wanted to contact them to chat to them about pain and their responses to it. So the audio series focuses on women and people in the queer community and um, and how they navigate pain, the medical industry, and all of the complexities that come along with that. In the first episode, you describe pain as, and I want to quote you, so you describe pain as a landscape with pockets of beauty and intensity. Firstly, love that description, but (laughs) I feel like a lot of us can understand what you mean by intensity, but we might struggle with what you mean by beauty. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I suppose I'm kind of pushing it a little bit there by using the word beauty, and that was like... I kind of wanted to say if you can uh, describe pain ever in that way. And I think that through interviewing some of the artists and writers in the podcast, um, that kind of gets to what I'm, I'm looking at there. Like in the first episode, talking to Eugenie Lee, who's a um, Korean-born, Sydney-based artist. And, you know, she really plays with the idea of like, what pain is and can it be beautiful can it be sexy can it be interesting um she has experiments where you know pain is inflicted on participants like these are willing participants that is all very safe um but she kind of tests the boundaries of when you know um sensations flick over into being pain and you know there's other instances of pain that's associated with pleasure and pain that starts off less severe gets more severe um and it's like it's it's intense then it's not beautiful it's kind of like where's the line between you know even an itch um is an itch pain um there's a line i think you cross where you describe it as pain and it's bad but like you know could pain ever be beautiful can it have textures can it have colors um a lot of people keep pain diaries and you know some people I've spoken to have also done drawings, um, which 
reflect their pain. So it's in that interpretation of pain, I suppose, that we're finding the beauty, like in colourful images, um, in descriptive language. Um, because of the intensity it has, it often evokes really strong feelings from people. Throughout the podcast, so the two episodes that have been released, you sort of touch on your own experience of chronic pain. Obviously, you don't really delve into it. So perhaps now is a good time to sort of touch on it. What's been your experience of chronic pain and what's that journey been like? I've had back pain for a lot of my life. And in my 20s, I experienced chronic hip and back pain um, at the same time. So my pain's mostly musculoskeletal relating um, from degeneration of discs and also ligaments and tendons within my hip. Um, And I lived for um, quite a few years just trying to manage that with physical therapy and painkillers. And then I undertook a range of surgical um, interventions. And that went on for quite a few years, like maybe 10 years, and it's still going on, but I have less pain now. Um, So I suppose my pain experience has predominantly been joint and musculoskeletal related, which is a particular type of pain. Um, I have sciatica, which is a nerve pain um, from my back down my leg. Um, So my pain is different to somebody who might experience, say, fibromyalgia or um, pain from endometriosis. Mm. Um, So there's quite a wide array of pain, but that's been my pain journey. So throughout that, I've dealt with surgeons and a lot of uh, medical professionals. And I've also, um, you know, dealt with mental health professionals along the way as well to help me manage my pain. And um, I found the experience pretty isolating um, and um, confronting and I was confused and I began to uh, write a diary um, and I looked back at the diary and that formed um, the inspiration for me um, to write more about pain and interview people and also to make this audio series. So just then you described your pain as isolating and confronting. Tell me more about that. Yeah, feeling isolated um, within medical settings and, and I think that often those hospital settings that I've been at a lot, you can feel a bit disempowered. Um, and I remember going in for surgeries and, you know, you're, you're stripped down, you put in a, a gown, taken away from your loved ones, um, and you have an enormous amount of trust that goes, that you um, are putting in other people. And, you know, it's quite lonely. There's nobody that can go into that room with you, into that operating theatre. Um, and you know, there's nobody that wakes up with you afterwards in the recovery room. And I think that, um, you know, you, you feel small, you feel fragile and you feel alone. And, um, I think that we need to kind of empower people in those situations and, um, since my first surgical experience, I've had other experiences where I was able to tell, um, you know, the anaesthetist, this is what I need to feel safe. And um, just having that conversation made the world of difference to me. So you started off feeling isolated. 
to feeling empowered what do you think helped you get there like where did this change begin it starts with like finding your voice often and it's really hard to find your voice in those state settings especially when there's obviously a little bit of a power imbalance um you know, other people have the knowledge, they have the years of training, you trust them, you believe what they're saying. So it takes a lot of practice um, to, mm. you know, stand up for what you really want or what you need. And you don't know how to do that. Um, and there are a lot of barriers that people face, um, whether they're language barriers, cultural barriers, um, and, you know, just even, you know, being a young woman in those spaces um, often makes you feel quite disempowered or, you know, um, like you don't have um, any kind of control over what's happening. Since starting the podcast to now, you've done a few episodes. Maybe it's too soon to think about whether anything has changed, but are there any reflections that you might have about how you now think about chronic pain? Yeah, I think... How I think about pain has been informed by the people that I've spoken with. I found um, their way of thinking and their courage really inspiring. Um, I still think chronic pain is a huge issue and we need to talk about it more and it's not being addressed properly. I think that I have more compassion for my body and now, whereas often at the start of the process, I was quite frustrated with my body um do what it couldn't do but it's been a slow journey um and you know this is largely down to other people's wisdom um in thinking that our bodies are just trying to do the best they can and they're sending us pain signals um, because they want us to fix something they're trying to protect us and that was georgia mill reflecting on her pain journey georgia is the host of a fluorescent feeling a podcast about pain and the way it's communicated and received In each episode, Georgia's guests generously share their experiences of chronic pain and the creative ways they've learned to manage it. A fluorescent feeling is available on all listening apps. Today's episode was heavy, so we understand if you need a minute to absorb all you've heard. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au slash womanontheline. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. We leave you today with Thalma Plume and her gorgeous song Homecoming Queen. I'm Ian Shirwa and I hope you can tune in again next time. feel beautiful and I love myself but it was hard to get used to me I'll be 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.